Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, September 29th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, a new way for organizations to launch cyber attacks against themselves. Plus, how much training is there for IRS agents facing the threat of physical harm? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, with a government shutdown on the horizon, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is preparing to furlough the vast majority of its staff. That could leave CISA with just a skeleton crew to respond to cyber attacks on federal agencies and critical infrastructure. For more, I'm joined by Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, welcome back. Hey, Eric, how are you doing? Very well. So what is CISA's plan in the event of a shutdown? So only about 571 out of CISA's 3,117 employees would be retained in the event of a shutdown. That's according to DHS's latest uh, plan for a lapse in appropriations just updated earlier this week. So that means CISA would be sending home uh, either you know, in real life or proverbially about uh, eight, more than 80% of its staff, which is a pretty pretty high number. And, you know, unless Congress acts in the coming days, funding for CISA and most other agencies will expire on Sunday. Uh, CISA does not have any of those those funds, you know, that kind of carry over beyond annual appropriations. So those folks who will be working that that 20 percent or so will be working without pay while the rest will be furloughed without pay. How do CISA's furloughing plans stack up against other DHS agencies? Because it's a large agency that is made up of a lot of components. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, most other DHS components are going to keep the majority of their employees working through a pandemic. They're either accepted, meaning they'll work without pay, or they're exempted, meaning they have some other funding source and can continue to be paid. So, for instance, the Transportation Security Agency will continue bringing in you know, all the airport screeners who work at airports. The Federal Emergency Management Agency will continue bringing in the majority of its staff, over 90%. Same with Customs and Border Patrol and, and right on down the line at DHS. So CISA is really an outlier here when it comes to DHS components. I spoke with Chris Kamiski, a former senior DHS official, just about how, you know, CISA being one of the newest agencies with a relatively new mission in cybersecurity and how that kind of stacks up in a shutdown. I don't think we've really thought through as a country what it means to have your cyber agency you know, at such a low level of activity when the cyber incident and attack vectors are you know, just increasing. So it just seems like the adversary would be like, oh, okay, this is a great time, you know, when we know that agencies are at, at low capacity to go in and try attacks. And again, that's Chris Kamiski, former senior DHS official, talking about how CISA is uh, reacting to a shutdown here. All right. So are the critical activities that the nation's infrastructure depend on CISA 4 going to take a backseat? I mean, what is going to continue with so much of the staff being furloughed? Yeah, we really can only uh, speculate based on data here because DHS's shutdown plan does not really detail exactly who 
at CISA will be required to continue to work. I mean, I'm sure that's a security issue there. So, so, but you, you know, you can expect the leadership will continue to come in. So CISA director Jenny Easterly, of course, that's pretty standard for any agency. And, and then, you know, probably the folks who work on some of the more critical, you know, either critical infrastructure programs or the federal cyber security programs. CISA has about 1,100 full-time employees working on cybersecurity programs. That's operations to help secure federal networks, major cybersecurity services. So obviously not all of those folks will continue to come in, but some of them will. I spoke to Matt Hayden, a former senior DHS and CISA official. He spoke a little bit about how things work at CISA during a shutdown. The good news is, is the operational footprint of CISA, the operational scanning and, and the, the true cyber warriors on keyboard isn't going to miss a beat. So that's the good news. The bad news is there's a lot of engagement with industry, exercises that are done with sector leadership. There are there are efforts that, you know, just due to the nature of a shutdown, don't get flagged as critical that they get paused for however long the shutdown takes. It's former DHS official Matt Hayden, and we're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. So speaking from experience there, obviously CISA has been through a shutdown before. What did it look like in the past? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the 2018-2019 shutdown, the longest federal government shutdown in history, actually uh, began a little more than one month after CISA was established as a standalone agency at DHS. So, you know, it, it was really just getting established as a kind of a startup agency growing out of DHS's former National Programs and Protection Directorate. And it was still a very small agency at the time. It, it's grown a lot in the last couple of years. It's also grown a lot in terms of the responsibilities that it has for both federal government cybersecurity, as well as working with critical infrastructure and kind of the broader technology ecosystem on cybersecurity. They've hired, you know, more than 1400 people over the last 2 years. So it's a, it's it's an entirely new agency this time around if a shutdown were to happen compared to the last time uh, about 4 years ago. Yeah, and with everybody including the private sector competing for talent in the cybersecurity industry, uh, I can imagine that this will only have a damaging effect on morale with so many employees getting furloughed. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a lot of folks are getting furloughed. You know, you, you can safely assume uh, two things about CISA, uh, uh, you know, cyber employees at CISA. One um, is that they probably took a pay cut to work for the government instead of for the private sector. And two, it's it's probably based on the fact that they wanted to be a part of a mission like at CISA, as opposed to working for, you know, a technology company or something like that. And now both 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 their pay is being taken away until the shutdown ends. And and for a lot of folks, that mission is being taken away for for however long the, the furlough lasts. So you can I spoke to several efforts who kind of talked about how this will probably have a, will definitely have a morale impact. And it could have an attrition impact at a time when CISA is still, you know, looking to grow and it's looking to get all those new employees kind of, you know, continue to be engaged in what the agency does for the long term. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you for the update. All right. Thank you, Eric. And you can find more of Justin's reporting and our continued shutdown coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Just search government shutdown for our shutdown resource page. 
Still to come on Federal News Network, how much training is there for IRS agents facing the threat of physical harm? It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Let's face it, the IRS is not necessarily the most popular agency. But while most just grouse about having to deal with it, some take it to an even more dangerous level by making and acting on threats of physically harming IRS agents. So what processes are in place for agents to report these people? A recent audit by the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, or TIGDA, looked to answer that question. To learn what it found, I spoke with Kent Segarra, who is the acting manager of TIGDA's Office of Inspections and Evaluations. In TIGDA, we also had sort of the concern in terms of you know, there's a lot of uh, information out there in terms of uh, misinformation as well, in terms of against the IRS and the federal government. So that raised our concerns, you know, in terms of making sure that the IRS is sort of in the best position it can be in to protect its employees. And so that was sort of the impetus of starting the evaluation to look at this program. And so what did you all find in analyzing what the agency provides as far as support and directions on what IRS workers, what steps they need to take when either actually assaulted or facing the threat of physical harm? So the IRS requires all of its employees to take this annual mandatory briefing on physical security. And this briefing includes information like IRS security policies and procedures. It also includes actions that employees should take to prepare for and respond to potential security incidents and emergencies. And so included within this briefing is a requirement to report assaults and threats to the IRS's Situational Awareness Management Center. It's also called SAMSI. You know, the IRS loves its acronyms. Oh, yeah. Uh, And also to TIGDA. And that's sort of the background. So the IRS employees understand what their responsibilities are. And so during our evaluation, you know, we wanted to see whether this training was actually provided to all employees. And it just so happens that there was another evaluation being done on active shooter readiness and training. And that same training was included in their review. And they basically took a look at, you know, whether all the employees were taking that training. So we sort of piggybacked off of that review. And then in its May 2023 report, you know, they found that 98% of all employees took the training. So that's a good thing. You know, however, they also found that only 71% of contract employees who worked at IRS facilities completed that training. So as part of their review, you know, they made the recommendation to ensure that contractors, you know, take the training. And if they don't take the training, they're sort of denied entry into IRS buildings. Gotcha. And as far as this training goes, does that pertain to being able to recognize when a bad situation is about to occur? Or does the training involve just, you know, who to report to after the fact? Yeah, the training does provide like definitions in terms of what's considered an assault and what's considered a threat. So at least there's a basis that they can form when it's occurring. You know, when it's happening sort of on the fly, employees have to sort of make that decision to sort of, you know, and the first thing they sort of explain is that you try to de-escalate the situation, you know, as best you can. But sometimes it proceeds. And then when it gets sort of out of hand, that's when after it's all said and done, they have to report it out to the proper parties. So once that occurs, what does the agency have in store next? Like I mentioned before, are there support options or do they just kind of take it from there? Once an incident like that occurs, they're supposed to report it 
to both the IRS and TIGDA. So there are processes and procedures in place within both organizations, making sure that the incident is recorded onto their system and so they can process and work it as quickly as they can. And that is one of the things that we looked at in terms of, you know, the guidance that was provided to employees. You know, the training is one aspect of it. You know, and you take that once a year and that's fine. But, you know, we're sort of looking at the instruction and guidance that are out there that employees can refer to whenever needed to. And so, you know, one of the things we looked at was what's out there for employees to look at. And we did find some inaccuracies and inconsistencies in terms of what employees are told to do. For an example, the inaccurate part had to do with, you know, they were saying that you can report an incident via fax. Well, the fax number really didn't operate and didn't really work, but it was still on their instructions. You know, so we told the IRS, you know, if you're going to keep it, make sure it's on. If you're not going to keep it, go ahead and turn it off and then take it out of your guidance. And then the inconsistent message, you know, there are various ways that employees can report these type of incidents. In terms of reporting it to TIGDA, you know, they can contact their local TIGDA special agents. They can call either the TIGDA 24-7 toll-free answering service or the TIGDA toll-free hotline number, or they can submit an online form on TIGDA's website. And then from the IRS's perspective, you know, employees can call the SAMC toll-free or 202 hotline number. They can also send an email to the SAMC email box, or they could submit sort of an online incident report form on its internal website. And then once that done, then that's when the processing sort of occurs and Ticket will follow up with the employee to do the interview to make sure and get their sort of statements. IRS does the same, and then, you know, Ticket will go off and sort of do their investigation of it. And so just in terms of the guidance provided, we did find these several examples, and so we did recommend the IRS to sort of come up with a single reporting message and then sort of update all of its guidance with that single message. Yeah, you may have just partly answered this, but given all those options and guidance provided, overall, you all you know made recommendations, but were the discrepancies only in the fact that not every IRS employee knew about these options or they just weren't functional? Yeah, one of the things we did during the evaluation was we actually went out and visited taxpayer assistance centers to sort of talk to those frontline employees and get a feel for, you know, do they understand how to report incidences and, you know, what to do in those situations. And what we found is there's sort of some, I guess there's some uncertainty, you can call it, that they're not quite sure what to do. And so we sort of guided them, you know, to the guidance on their website as well as, you know, some of the training material. And so what we made recommendations, at least to the IRS, was, you know, maybe create like a poster that sort of lays out all the reporting options that you can hang somewhere in the employee areas of all these tax centers. And then the IRS also has these little, I guess, wallet-sized carrying cards that has reporting instructions that the employees can carry with them. So we sort of, we recommended that they make that available to all employees just so they get a better feel for what to do, you know, when these situations occur. And just out of curiosity, you mentioned that you talked to some frontline employees. Did you actually talk to any people who were victims of assaults or threats against them? Uh, it just so happens that one of the folks that we did talk to had gone through an incident about maybe uh, six or seven months prior. So she actually knew exactly what to do because she went through that. And she did, you know, express a lot of concern, uh, as did many of the other employees we talked to, because it was sort of a topic they didn't think about. But when we sort of engaged them, you know, you know, we asked them if this is something they're very concerned about. And, and they were to some degree, uh, but they understood that, you know, there's a job to do. You know, you're going to deal with taxpayers, you know, of all different mindsets. So you sort of have to just be aware. 
Interesting. And so, you know, this is a crime uh, and I'm not a lawyer, but I'm going to guess that assaulting an IRS agent is (laughs) or even making threats is probably against some sort of federal law. What stage does the prosecutorial side of things enter the picture and what role does the IRS play in facilitating that? Yeah, so that that actually goes a little beyond what we looked at in terms of just the reporting aspect of these things, because mm-hmm. that's more of the tail end as it's being worked. I will tell you that, yes, TIGDA is sort of the law enforcement agency over the IRS, and it is a federal crime to, I think, forcibly assault, resist, impede, oppose, or intimidate you know, federal employees, as well as those dealing with the IRS. And so they're the ones who will take that. I guess, the investigation and start uh, working it from a criminal perspective. You know, the uh, the things that we looked at were more the administrative side on what they can do within the IRS to ensure that, you know, this taxpayer who did something, you know, to an employee is sort of uh, recognized in his or her account. Yeah, it's something that probably not a lot of folks think about in speaking with you, you know, that the IG body is a law enforcement entity that can make arrests. Is that correct? That is correct. Anything else that we didn't touch on that you think is important for the conversation? You know, at the end of the day, the whole goal of our evaluation was sort of taking a look at all these different processes and guidance and what have you. And it really comes down to, you know, once the assault and threat are confirmed and there's a nexus to tax administration, you know, the IRS has to post these indicators on these tax accounts. And, And the whole reason they do that is so any other employee in the future who sort of accesses that tax account this indicator will pop up and say, hey, just as a warning, you know, this person has previously assaulted or threatened another employee, you know, so you want to may take the necessary precautions if you have to deal with that taxpayer. So really, it's it's for the protection of the employees. You, know, you can't protect them, you know, when it first occurs because no one can sort of suspect that. But once it occurs and it's confirmed, you know, IRS takes the necessary steps. Ken Sagara is acting manager of TIGDA's Office of Inspections and Evaluations. We'll post this interview along with a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, VA and the Pentagon look to take advantage of a new spinal procedure for those injured in the line of duty. But first, a new way for organizations to launch cyber attacks against themselves. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Recently, MITRE and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency released the open-sourced extension of MITRE's Caldera platform specifically for operational technology. This is meant to be utilized by security teams to run automated adversary emulation exercises that are specifically focused on threats to operational technology. I got the chance to speak with two of the people who helped build it. Alex Reniers is chief of the Industrial Control Systems section within CISA's Cybersecurity Division. And John Wonder is department manager of CTI and adversary emulation for the MITRE Corporation. You'll hear from John first. MITRE has been working for a few years on something called Caldera. Caldera is our open source adversary emulation platform. Adversary emulation is basically a practice of emulating or pretending to be adversaries on a system or network in order to kind of evaluate our defenses against that. So if we can pretend to be an adversary, we can say, okay, well, you know, I used the techniques and behaviors that these adversaries really use, and here's how my defenses did. And then that can help us as defenders kind of better understand how we can improve those defenses and kind of train against them and develop new capabilities for defenses and things like that. 
And kind of traditionally, Caldera has been more of an enterprise system. We use it on our enterprise systems and networks and things like that. But through this partnership with CISA, through our Homeland Security Systems Engineering and Development Institute, we've developed these new capabilities on top of Caldera called Caldera for OT or Caldera for Operational Technology that kind of extends the Caldera capabilities to also include emulation of attacks on operational technology networks and industrial control systems. All right. And so, Alex, obviously, critical infrastructure, the protection of their IT systems has been at the forefront of a lot of what CISA has been trying to push forth. What role did the agency play in creating this and how will you be promoting it? I guess, will you be encouraging folks to use this tool? Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously, we've supported it in kind of two facets, one of which is we've funded part of it. Obviously, there are other participants, other stakeholders involved, and other partners between Wired and SETI and funding Caldera. But as far as the OT plugins, uh, another way we've supported it is using our control environment laboratory resource or seller. Seller is essentially we take uh, control systems environments, we shrink them down to the size of a ping pong table, but we try to emulate the processes as much as possible. So we'll have physical hardware in there, physical components, software components that you would see in a control systems environments to include the uh, protocols that they use as well. And so what we've done is in one of our flagship service offerings within Seller, uh, we do what's called simulated engagements where we'll bring in defenders. We'll have our live red team, which is our MITRE Hassetti team uh, as well. Uh, they'll execute a number of actions in the environments and our blue team from, from the IT side all the way through the OT side. And our blue team participants, the defenders, uh, they have to track and identify and report that behavior to what we refer to as the white cells of the quote, quote, owner and operator, which is us. And so in that process and developing the scenarios and conducting a number of simulated engagements, MITRE has said he's really gotten a good taste of like what works in those environments and also to expand and improve upon those plugins for the Caldera OT tool. And John, in order to emulate an attack on OT, what changes did you have to make to the original Caldera system? You can be as specific as you'd like, but in layman's terms, if you can. <laughs> <laughs> So really, we were building on top of Caldera. So we were adding these new capabilities. And specifically, what we're doing is developing, I would say, like protocol emulations. So on industrial control systems or in operational technology, these systems are like talking to each other using protocols. So they're sending data back and forth between each other. And so basically, what we've done is added these plugins to Caldera that let us speak that language. Some of those specific protocols are things like BACnet or DMP3 or Modbus. And basically by giving Caldera the ability to speak these languages, we can then say, okay, well now we can interact with these systems in a way that Caldera couldn't before. Okay. And so who is this for? You know, what specific kinds of critical infrastructure, um, water treatment plants, things of that nature that we think of, or is this more of for folks that may not even be on the actual site of, you know, what you're trying to protect? Yeah, so by open sourcing it, we're trying to obviously to reach as, as broad an audience as possible. And I think obviously our main target, especially as CISA, who we want to help the most is, is actual owner and operators and hopefully their security teams to adopt and use this tool in a safe practice environment. We're certainly not encouraging you to practice this in a live production environment. Perhaps you have a localized test range or something that you can use to, to do this and improve your, your, your defenses. That's obviously one of our primary targets for folks. And also we've used it also internally for our own teams as well. So we have hunt teams, we have DOD CPT teams, Coast Guard teams that have come through in Seller. We've used Caldera for that to help them practice their response efforts and their threat hunting detection efforts uh, in these OT environments. So it's really a wide, broad audience of folks uh, that we're trying to reach both internally and externally to CISA. And how important is being able to actually emulate these attacks with 
you know, guarding a modern critical infrastructure. You know, Alex, if you can just describe on how helpful it can be rather than, you know, just kind of putting up walls, you're actually showing where those walls weaknesses are. Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical, uh, especially in the sense that to have a desired effect in a control systems environment uh, that you are you as the adversary trying to enact there's a lot of sophistication behind that uh, and i think more and more unfortunately more and more nation states not more and more nation states but key nation states that we're very keen on uh, are putting more and more resources into improving their capabilities to do this as the barrier to entry into doing this lower so too then you have the number of folks that are willing and wanting to do this so whether it be a nation state actor or a cyber criminal actor doing ransomware I think the the impetus is on the defenders to really uh, step up their game. And I think that's where CISA and our partnership with MITRE and and various other FFRDCs, that's really what we're trying to do is, is help out the defenders as much as possible. And John, how do you make sure that these attacks that you're emulating are up to date themselves? Uh, you know, Alex has laid out how the bad actors are always looking for new ways to infiltrate. Um, how do you make sure that these attacks are genuine? So one of the things we do is really we stay oriented on the adversary and we look at reporting called cyber threat intelligence about like what adversaries are doing. That includes both on the enterprise side, how are they attacking IT systems and networks? And even really on the OT side, there's thankfully fewer attacks to OT that we see reported publicly, but there aren't none. And we can kind of look at what those attacks look like. And then that's how we emulate our attacks is basically by repeating that. And we do a little bit also of kind of pivoting from that and saying, you know, if adversaries are typically doing this, they're probably or likely to also do that. And then therefore we can kind of emulate that as well. And I think that's also the added benefit of keeping it as an open source project is you now have other people partnering on it with you and, and their exchange information and MITRE has just been wonderful as far as, you know, engaging those folks and those repositories, the GitHub repositories, et cetera. So having it open source gives us that advantage of people contributing to expanding the project. Yeah, and to Alex's point, we um, partnered with CISA initially on some of these capabilities. We're partnering with others and have some internal research as well just to kind of keep this moving across the whole community. And I thank you, gentlemen, for providing a good segue to my next question, which was, what are you hearing from the actual users of this tool? Are they satisfied or are they saying, hey, you know, it could have some more teeth? It obviously depends, right? I think, and I'm going to speak squarely for we use it for Inceller. There's probably other things I think uh, John could better speak to, but I'll speak squarely to how we've been using it in our seller environment. All the participants that we've had come through, which I think is about 15, 15 roughly at this point since FY22 to now overwhelmingly positive. I think when you have your very well-advanced, well-structured teams, obviously they want a little bit more, but the ability to have this environment in an OT test range, an operational technology test range, to have this ability to plug in, connect, near components and controllers in a safe space is incredibly rare. So being able to have this tool, Caldera OT, and also the seller test range, it provides our participants a very unique opportunity to experience essentially what you call live, live fire uh, in a safe environment. We've had utility uh, owner operators come through. We've had a few utilities come through. Like I said, DOD CPT teams, our Coast Guard teams, our own internal folks, and overwhelmingly positive. Obviously, there's always other areas to improve upon, but overwhelmingly pretty positive. I would say one of the biggest expansions we're looking at is just like, what is the set of protocols and therefore what's the set of target infrastructure that this can operate on? You know, we've kind of kicked this off with three, but obviously, or maybe not obviously, like different sectors have very different types of infrastructure and controllers and things like that. And, you know, the capability to operate on an electric grid is going to be very, very different than to operate on um, water treatment or chemical manufacturing or something like that. And so all of those things require different capabilities in Caldera for OT just because those environments are so different and they use different protocols and different controllers and things like that. Alex, I'm an OT operator who's listened to this interview and is trying to see if the tool can work for me. How do I get in touch with you guys? 
I think we would point them to the uh, the GitHub page. Is that right, John? Yep, probably the easiest way is search for Caldera for OT um, on your search engine. You can also go to github.com slash MITRE slash Caldera dash OT. John Wonder is Department Manager of CTI and Adversary Emulation for the MITRE Corporation. You also heard from Alex Reniers, who is Chief of the Industrial Control Systems Section within CISA's Cybersecurity Division. Find this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, VA and the Pentagon look to take advantage of a new spinal procedure for those injured in the line of duty. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. A new contract awarded to Disk Seal Technologies by the Veterans Affairs Department tasks the company with training physicians to perform a new non-surgical spine procedure to all Department of Defense and VA hospitals in the United States and overseas. I wanted to hear more about what is called the Disk Seal procedure, so I spoke to its creator, Dr. Kevin Pauza, who is also Chief Medical Advisor and Director of Disk Seal Technologies. Even more recently, uh, we've been learning that the veterans across America have this crisis with opioid addiction, and it's directly tied into suicide rate. And, and that was disconcerting to me. And then I recognized that these uh, veterans, uh, and, and it's not just veterans, uh, but across the United States, uh, are um, uh, often addicted to opioids, uh, no fault of their own, but they were prescribed them after having spine surgeries. And um, the failure rate for spine surgery is relatively high, and that causes uh, people to then be on uh, opioids because there's very few ways to manage it. So anyway, uh, that was the problem. I recognized that uh, you know there was a problem in surgery, and my focus early on at the University of Pennsylvania was treating failed spine surgery. So that's all I saw were people who had failed prior surgeries, and then I recognized that. The whole paradigm was wrong, that the majority of surgeries were unnecessary, and uh, there was this industry of uh, medical fusion fueling it. And so uh, many of this, the, the spine surgeons um, knew that we needed changes, but many of them didn't welcome my changes because um, I recognized, no, instead of, um, you know, putting bolts and hardware uh, and rods and screws into spines, uh, it would be better to just allow the discs to regrow. Um, and so, you know, for for decades, I've been working on a way to uh, cause the discs to grow. And, and the answer was, was almost too simple. Veterans especially have a very high instance of uh, chronic low back pain or neck pain, very high instance. And it's probably a lot to do with what they do, uh, what they've done. All right. So the main question, I guess, is how does the disc seal procedure work? With this treatment, um, what we simply do is we recognize that uh, the discs are usually the cause of low back pain. The discs are the cushions in our back. If it's torn, that'll cause it to bulge or herniate or degenerate. Uh, That's the terms they use. But that's the problem. It's a torn disc. All disc problems, all disc pathology is directly caused by torn discs. No exception. And so uh, we needed a way to heal the discs. And so a way that just made uh, made sense was the same way our body heals our skin. So when we take a knife to our skin and it's cut, it heals. Uh, it heals because our body sends something called fibrin to the cut. 
and that heals the cut. And so anyway, having said that, uh, there's an FDA-approved drug called fibrin. Fibrin is what causes everyone's injuries to heal, skin to heal, or if we uh, injure our spleen, we put fibrin on the spleen and it causes spleen to heal. And even years ago when they did facial reconstruction, they use sutures, uh, and now we could use fibrin. We put it on the face, and we don't need sutures. That's all the procedure is. The procedure is called the disc seal procedure, and even though it does seal the discs, uh, to me, the more important part is that the disc seal procedure causes the growth of new disc tissue. There's you know, many <laughs> spine industry people that are, you know, constantly attacking this uh but you know there's luckily though there's hope because there's uh, some very fine spine surgeons who who recognize the need for the disc seal procedure and so you know one of those was uh, the, the va and department defense yeah i wanted to jump in here and find out how how did they come to learn about this procedure or did you go to them or did they come to you uh just give me a, a back backdrop on what what went down there yeah Basically, I don't know how the relationship started with the VA and Department of Defense, except for the fact that I know that I've treated many veterans, and they've been paying out of pocket for the procedure over the years. And somehow, veterans that must have reached out to congressmen or people in the VA or Department of Defense to say, hey, you know, you guys uh, need to know about this because you're, you're telling my friends to have fusions. And, 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 and so anyway, it's, it's, it's that grassroots campaign that started from veterans who I do not know that brought this into the VA and Department of Defense attention. And they reached out to us asking if it was something that we could scale and make available to them. And so uh, I was, you know, very, um, you know, focused on my practice, but I felt there was a a much bigger need. And if this could be made available uh, to, you know, who I thought deserved it more than anybody else, that would be the VA and Department of Defense. Uh, Then I would, you know, put everything aside and focus on the VA and Department of Defense. And so, yeah, so they, um, you know, they signed an agreement um, that allows me to uh, to train all of their physicians and nursing staff. In addition, it uh, pays for the procedure in full uh, for uh, any any veteran or uh, active or non-active member of the Department of Defense. Uh, so so th- it, it that had to let you know that you were definitely on to something, despite all the pushback you got from uh, the spinal surgery industry uh, that let you know that, oh, well, if if these folks are into it and then I got to be on to something. Right. It was a really good feeling. And it, it actually it, it actually turned it changed my mind about the <laughs> the VA and Department of Defense, uh, <laughs> because it caused me to recognize that. They truly do want something that's better than is being offered out there uh, because um, they're actually ahead of the game when it comes to this uh, because only now other insurance companies are approaching me. But uh, the VA and Department of Defense you know, kind of took the lead, if you will, and, uh, and recognized the technology and, and recognized the data, reviewed it all, um, <clears throat> even long before it was uh, made public to anybody out there. So... Uh, uh, that really uh, it caused me to, uh, you know, to respect uh, whatever's happening in the VA and Department of Defense at, at, at a high level, um, more so than um, than most people give it credit, uh, you know, in my experience. 
then let's uh, let's not lose focus of who this actually helps, which is the patients themselves. What if what do you hear from them? Are they you know, I, I imagine they're not virtually pain free just because spines are so finicky. But, you know, are, are they saying that it's a lot better than the alternative? Well, yeah, real good question. So it's among one of the largest uh, spine the studies that's been done with a, a registry. So in other words, I, so I thought, okay, let me teach other doctors. So I taught a small group of doctors, and yes, they could duplicate the results. And then I said, well, let's see what the results are. And, and so, yeah, the patients are happy. And so we've been following uh, over 700 patients. We're now at over uh, five years, uh, but we've had no adverse events no complications. There's no spine surgeon in the United States who can make that equal statement. Uh, and the data was all collected independently. Because this was so uh, so important uh, and it would be looked at with scrutiny, I felt, as it deserved to be, I had the data collected by the actual registry that's endorsed by the surgeons because I thought they'd be my strongest critics. So it's a, a registry that's supported and endorsed uh, by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery that collects all my data, not me. I'm blinded to my data. I couldn't even access it. But anyway, they looked at everything considered important to a patient. That means even dis depression, mental health, disability, function, pain. Uh, looked at the eight things uh, and demonstrated what we call statistically significant improvement in everything they looked at at one year. And then I thought, well, after one year, it's going to fall off, as everything else does. But at two years, the outcomes were even better than one year. And at three years, they were better than two years. And that's probably reflective of the fibrin's ability to heal the disc over time. And that's the opposite of what surgery does, because we know that over time, surgery, because it does something unnatural to the spine, worsens the adjacent segments. It's just, just the nature of surgery. They can't help it. It just does that. And this does the opposite. And you even have a fair amount of patients come in proactively. A lot of them are pro athletes and others who recognize the, you know, the value of being proactive and they have their spines uh, treated uh, you know with the procedure and um, I, I treat several royal families overseas and uh, one of them had me treat uh, all the members proactively because they were uh, plagued with spine pain and spine surgery over the decades prior and um, for all those that I treated none of them have needed spine surgery you know after following them for over seven years so it's um, it's a whole different paradigm that you know the disc cell procedure uh, is focused on quickly identifying the tears and we do that at the same time so the patients come in they don't get put to sleep but they're a twilight sedation it's called conscious sedation and then uh, we perform the procedure that's where we uh, easily um, we direct some very small needles into the bottom discs identify the tears and then we immediately seal all those tears with fibrin and then the patients go to recovery and that takes less than an hour to do um, and then in recovery for 30 minutes and then the patients go home and then I want them to start exercise the following day. Dr. Kevin Pauza is Chief Medical Advisor and Director of Disc Skill Technologies. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. But first, 
Many federal employees will keep working with or without pay if Congress triggers a government shutdown, but a lapse in funds would shutter most operations at the Environmental Protection Agency. Its most recent contingency plan calls for furloughing 93% of its total workforce. For a rundown of how EPA employees should prepare for a shutdown, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with President of the American Federation of Government Employees Local 704 in Chicago, Nicole Cantello. So what we have drafted is kind of shutdown tips for EPA employees as well as, uh, you know, Q&As in order to help them get through this time when they're of uncertainty. You know, there's so much concern, especially among the newer employees. So we brought on a whole cohort of people to implement both the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. And because there's so many newer employees that did not go through the shutdown that was for 35 days during the Trump administration, we have started to educate our employees as a union, try to get them acclimated to the fact that there may be the shutdown. Yeah, that's an important point. Is there a rough estimate of how many newer employees have been brought onto the the EPA's ranks, just given the Inflation Reduction Act and, and those recent hires? EPA is intending on bringing in on 1,800 people this year. I don't know what percentage of that has already been brought on. I'm president of AFC Local 704. We have about 1,000 employees in Chicago, and I know over 100 new employees have started there. So that gives you an idea of the extent of how, you know, how many new employees we have coming on at EPA, and we're very excited about that. But they are, there's a lot of anxiety because they have not experienced a shutdown before. They tend to be more paycheck to paycheck because they're newer employees who don't haven't built up a lot of savings. So there is a lot of anxiety by the new employees due to the shutdown and the threat. To zoom out here a little bit, obviously every shutdown is going to be some employees' first shutdown. But as an institution, the APA has a playbook usually for how these things go and how they operate during a government shutdown. How much are EPA operations affected by a government shutdown usually? And in terms of a rough estimate here, what rough percentage of EPA employees are furloughed during a shutdown and how many are working without pay? EPA has uh, forecasted that 93% of the workforce will be furloughed during the shutdown. That's a really high percentage. It's one of the highest percentage of any federal government agency. So we're anticipating that most of the workforce will be out of work if if a shutdown does occur. There are two segments of employees that continue to work. One are accepted employees, and those are ones that are absolutely necessary for the continued operation of EPA, and that's a small percentage, 80 to 100 total nationwide. And then there's a small group also of employees that make up the rest of the percentage that are exempt employees. And these are employees working under the IRA and the BIL, again, that was already funded. So they will work during the shutdown and get paid because that IRA and BIL is not affected by the appropriations process. And so that's about 7% or 6% of the employees at EPA. What should EPA employees know and prepare for if this is, in fact, their first government shutdown that they're a federal employee for? Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that we try to alert them to. Uh, First, that their health insurance will continue during the shutdown. That is such an important thing for some people to just be concerned about. And and we, we alert them that, yes, their health insurance will continue, but no, they will not get paid during the shutdown, although they will get paid after the shutdown, according to the new law that they will not have access to their work computers. You know, so much of what they do on a day-to-day basis and finding out information about what's going on in the shutdown has to do with getting on your computer. You find out all that information from work on your computer, but during the shutdown, they will not be given any information over their computer. They will have to watch the news 
or get information from their union, which is what we're doing. We're setting up an intense system where we're going to be able to have a lot of communications up and running. So we'll be the main source of information for them, but they will not get information over their government computer, which is a new thing for a lot of people. We tell them to put money by to uh, save money uh, in order to last during the time when they're not going to receive a paycheck. So uh, we, we explain to them how they might be able to get an unemployment insurance in certain states. So there's all kinds of things that we try uh, try to touch on a, a few of them there that we try to alert federal employees about. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken with the unemployment insurance angle, if they go that route, my understanding is that once they get paid, they would have to pay those unemployment insurance benefits back. Am I correct in saying that? That's right. They would have to pay it back, but this would at least give them some amount of funds during the time of the shutdown. So yes, they would have to pay it back. There's no free riders on the federal government employees. They would have to pay it back, yeah. There's a pretty comprehensive frequently asked questions type, uh, these 10 shutdown tips that you've shared with employees. In terms of, I guess, the most frequently asked questions that you as a union leader are receiving, what are the things that you're hearing the most about? What are the things that are just increasingly common that employees are asking of union leadership as we're getting closer and closer to this deadline? Yeah, so they ask all kinds of questions that you wouldn't think about. For instance, some of them have promotions that are coming up. Are those promotions going to be processed? Some of them have things like called details in which you go and work for another office for three to four months. Are those going to start during the shutdown or are they going to be delayed? There's just so many issues that might occur. Some of them have all kinds of things taken out of their paycheck, not just their health insurance. Would those continues and what happens to those services, things like long-term insurance, long-term health insurance and things like that. They just have a whole bunch of questions surrounding the disruption of the federal government's operations and, and whether or not their particular work situation is going to be taken care of during that time. For the enforcement side of EPA, the, the cops on the beat, they would not be working during a shutdown, is my understanding, along with, as you point out, a vast majority of the, the EPA workforce. Uh, with that in mind, what do you see as kind of the environmental impact of a shutdown if that were to happen? Yeah, I mean, environmental services to the American people would just be pretty much on a wide scale. Not only things like enforcement, like actually bringing cases, but what enforcers also do is monitor, and that's really important. They check to make sure that there's no pollution happening around the nation. And so this kind of things where, you know, you can take a look at the data and see, for instance, with monitoring, whether or not someone is complying or not complying with the law and whether or not pollution is entering into the environment, for instance, around neighborhoods, those kinds of things just would cease. Um, I, during the last shutdown, I was involved in a, a situation where there was an EJ community and we had fence line monitors between the community and the facility and the facility had, an, had a history of polluting and we were monitoring that on a day-to-day -day basis and on a day-to-day -day basis, the facility was going up and down with the amount of pollution it was emitting into the environment. And I remember during the last shutdown that the data was coming into us, to our emails, and we could not check it. We could not assure that community that, that there was no pollution entering into the environment, into their neighborhood, being breathed in by their kids. We could not give any assurances like that during that 35-day period when the data was coming in, even though they were concerned during that time period about the safety of their, of their families. So that's the kind of thing that I think enforcers do that people don't really understand. It's not only bringing cases, but it also does all this level of monitoring. Another thing that just the whole regulatory side of EPA having to do with climate change and PFAS and stuff like that, setting limits 
uh, making sure that there's the appropriate regulations in place, all that would grind to a halt. So uh, it's just very profound, all the different parts of EPA that wouldn't be working. Another thing is response to emergency events. Even though there's usually someone on call who receives the call to go out to an environmental emergency like Maui, like any of the hurricanes, uh, responses like the wildfire responses out in California, it's going to be harder for EPA to gear up to respond to those emergencies when everybody's on furlough. That was Nicole Cantello, president of the American Federation of Government Employees Local 704, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You can find more of Jory's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. You can also subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, especially on the government shutdown, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or go to our website and search government shutdown for our shutdown resource page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin.